we don't need to know a whole lot more in order to apply what we already understand about how to combine ecology with our objective, which is to produce food. So we actually need markets, we need policies, we need incentives, we need educational systems so that farmers understand these management techniques and begin to apply them. the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today we're talking about something that everyone can get behind, food. What's your favorite food? Is it a healthy salad, grilled salmon, a frozen pizza? Ever wonder about what goes into getting that food onto your table? If your answer is yes, then this is the episode for you. And stick around after the interview for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. With Thanksgiving in the United States just a week away, I've been thinking about one of my favorite topics, food, and how we produce and consume it. I love gardening and growing my own food. During the summer, I'm one of those co-workers who brings in the excess of what I grow to share around. I may even be one of those co-workers whom others come to for advice on how to rescue their sad little green beans or the best way to stake a tomato plant. But despite being part of my own little food chain in my backyard, like many Americans, I didn't really know a lot about where the rest of my food comes from. I mean, not until I started working here at UCS, where we have a team of dedicated scientists and agroecologists who study food and how we produce it. And honestly, some of what I've learned makes me want to postpone Thanksgiving until we can figure out how to grow, distribute, and consume food in ways that are healthier and more equitable for all of us in this country. Here to talk about the good, the bad, and the unfair in food are correspondent Abby Figueroa and Dr. Ricardo Salvador, director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Ricardo leads a team of scientists and experts in researching and implementing ways to improve the American food system from farm to fork. He and Abby chatted about American agriculture and sustainability how climate change might affect our farms and farmers, and he also graciously accompanied Abby on her imaginary trip to the grocery store. Hi, Ricardo. Welcome to Got Science. Nice to see you, Abby. Well, we're here to talk today about food and farming and what does it take to build a food system that's equitable and sustainable. But before we get into that, I thought we could talk a little bit about you and What brought you to this world of food, farming, and sustainable agriculture? Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. For me, it's all been a big accident. I've been trying to do something about the welfare of my family. Uh, On my dad's side, these were self-provisioning farmers in southern Mexico. And I operated for the longest time with the assumption that the reason why they were poor, in spite of how hard they worked and how ingenious they were, was that they lacked technical information. And so I studied a scientific career because I thought I would be able to contribute to the knowledge that small-scale farmers need. And while that has been good, uh, I discovered much too late, I was way into that course of education, that it really wasn't lack of technical knowledge, it was actually social factors that determined it because 
who my family were, it didn't matter how hard they worked. They were destined to always be in the bottom socioeconomic rung. So that has brought me to shape a career that covers both the science of agriculture as well as the social justice aspects of agriculture. Now, where did you grow up, Ricardo? All over southern Mexico, so primarily in the states of Puebla and Oaxaca. Ah, so when it comes to food, what are your earliest memories of food in southern Mexico? Well, I'm so old that I remember all kinds of food that folks probably would think is quaint uh, right now, but we used to actually go to a market or to a store to get the ingredients for every day's meals. That was a very routine thing. And my mom would make that pilgrimage and then uh, send us kids on little errands to get the little things that we would need. And so, for instance, it would be uh, bread that we would have for breakfast and bread that we would have at the very end of the day. I still very fondly remember the meal that is called merienda, which is just before the kids get put to bed, you get... Um, what here would be called a latte, you know, it, it would be uh, coffee with milk and uh, confectionery bread. Did you have a favorite food when you were a kid? Oh yeah, absolutely. There is a dish which is very traditional to the part of Mexico where I grew up, which is called mole, and it varies by region. Everybody down to the individual family household believes that they have the best recipe for mole, which is a very complicated sauce which is based on chocolate and it's got all kinds of very interesting flavors. So I, I remember that fondly. Sounds delicious. Many people don't think of food too much beyond the supermarket or beyond the dinner table. Why should food be a hot button issue, a political issue next year in 2019? Well, primarily because of the way that it's produced. And so there are people that are involved in both producing the food as well as processing and getting it to us. So the way in which it's produced actually signifies livelihood to many people. Uh, the way in which it's produced is also a way of using the earth uh, because it's still a process that happens outdoors and so we utilize natural resources. So there is a way in the worst of instances in which we do is in, uh, we basically exploit both the people that produce, process and deliver the food to us as well as the natural environment. Um, there are all kinds of alternatives in which we can treat everyone fairly and in which we can actually regenerate natural resources. And so, of course, at UCS, we're advocates for the latter. But the thing is that most people think of their food just in terms of the flavors that they like, uh, how much time they have to go and find some place to manufacture, serve uh, the food to them, clean up after them. And really, very few people actually think about what's behind the plate, so to speak. And so what that leads to is that most of us can condone an agricultural and a food system that we wouldn't approve of if we knew everything that it's actually doing in our name. Now, one of the myths we sometimes hear about with sustainable agriculture is that it can't be done on a large enough scale um, to keep pace with demand, with the growing population, or that it's old-fashioned techniques and that there's much more, you know, there's, there's new innovative ways to farm instead. What do you say to that? 
Well, sustainability doesn't have to do with scale. It has to do with the methods that you use. And specifically, sustainability is about how long you can keep up any given activity. So, in fact, a lot of the very large-scale industrial methods that we see applied in agriculture today are some of the most extractive methods. So, by definition, they're not sustainable. You can't keep on extracting at the rate that they are both water, the fossil fuel that they need, the minerals that they need transported from all over the planet to make that practice viable. Um, now, I, I should say there are methods of producing sustainable, uh, sustainably at large scale, which all goes to the initial point that sustainability is not about scale. It's about the methods that you use. So are you returning uh, nutrients to the earth, for instance? Are you regenerating uh, the carbon? Small-scale agriculture is something that I'm interested uh, for the reasons that I described. It was essentially the type of agriculture that was practiced where I was raised, and I could see that it was very viable. Uh, but beyond my personal experience with it, it provides livelihood for a greater number of people and decent livelihood for a greater number of people, or at least it has the potential to do that. By definition, in larger scale uh, agriculture, what you need to do is to mechanize and to homogenize practices as much as possible. So that means that the returns go to those that actually create the machinery that makes the large-scale practices possible. You need fewer people to practice that sort of agriculture. And so it all depends on what you value, what you want to see in your food system, and what and whom you want to support. So let's change gears and talk a little bit about one of the issues that UCS is very heavily focused on these days, which is climate change. What does the future of farming and food look like in our warming world? If we extrapolate what we expect climate change to do, uh, first of all, uh, weather extremes are going to be much more frequent. We're already beginning to see that. So um, with higher temperatures, we will have much more moisture in the air, much more rapid and violent exchange of energy. And uh, you know, in the scientific sense, this means thermal exchange of energy. And so we can expect a lot of storms, very extreme weather events. Uh, that is prone to cause situations where we're going to have a lot of water at one time, and so that means that our systems will need to be resilient in order to be able to absorb that water so that it's not a destructive force. That means we need to improve the soil so that it has sponge-like characteristics, and that will depend on having a lot of organic matter in the soil. And so what this means is that we need to be managing cropping systems so that they return a lot of organic matter, vegetation, to the soil so that we can begin to build up those stores and have soil that can fulfill two functions simultaneously. One is to retain water in storage for a long period of time so that in between rainfall events or in between storm events, the water is banked up and plants can grow whether it's raining concurrently or not. And the other function is to actually meter that water out to plants as they use it, as I've just said. And so the very best soil fulfills that characteristic because in the matrix that soil is, there's actually two different compartments uh, where those different types of water are actually stored. A farmer who knows what she or he is doing understands that the soil works that way and what you need to build that quality of soil. The majority of farmers are actually just interested in getting a crop in and out as quickly as possible. They need machinery to do that, and in the utilization of machinery, 
what they do is actually destroy the capacity of the soil to perform in the way that I just described. They will uh, tend to compact it, they will tend to erode it, and so on. So it's everything that goes against what we need in order to be able to be resilient in the face of the dramatic change in climate, um, at least as far as the production aspect of agriculture is concerned. You know, as a, as, as a geek, it, it is fun to stay up with a lot of the innovations that are occurring in agriculture. Um, and I will give you one or two examples of that sort of stuff, but I just want to underscore that we know enough already to be able to practice agroecological systems of production. And that's very important to underscore because agriculture is an activity that is practiced outdoors utilizing natural resources as our main elements. With our knowledge, we can determine how productive that system is and whether it's sustainable for the long term. We don't need to know a whole lot more in order to apply what we already understand about how to combine ecology the way that the world actually works, the way that nature works, with our objective, which is to produce food. So we actually need uh, markets, we need policies, we need incentives, we need educational systems so that farmers understand these management techniques and begin to apply them. So that, that's really what our work is at UCS. For me, it's very important to always distinguish that from this siren song of technology as if that were the key to solve any problem, because in fact, it's actually created a lot of the problems that we're trying to countervail right now, soil erosion and pollution of water and greenhouse gas emission by agriculture and so on. Now, having said that, the crops that we work with are biological organisms that we have been improving to suit our needs from the moment that we began to domesticate them. The domestication process was never an instantaneous thing, it's always been gradual. And we are at the point now where we actually are beginning to understand enough about DNA and the way that it works. Um, that we may be able to adapt these species, both crops and animals, much more quickly to what we need of them in order to produce food. Now that's exciting from a scientific uh, standpoint. So such things as, for instance, getting grasses to fix biological nitrogen from the atmosphere and reduce their dependence on fertilizers, uh, those are exciting prospects. Uh, we already have some instances of cases where through genetic modification you can actually integrate resistance to some insect species uh, into plants. So from a geeky standpoint, those sorts of things are, are very exciting. The other uh, developments mostly have to do with digitization and uh, things that almost everybody is familiar with who uses a cell phone, and that is geographic positioning uh, systems. Uh, automation of equipment. Uh, if you talk to conventional agriculturists, they would recite all of those things almost breathlessly. So I'm, uh, you know, just as geeky as anybody else about those things. But I'm always asking, what kind of a system does that serve? Uh, developing the kinds of organisms that I just described can be a very expensive proposition with the business models that we have in place right now. And therefore, if industries undertake that very expensive investment, they will want to recoup that investment, which means that only farmers that have the capital and operate at such a scale 
that they can justify that kind of investment will benefit from that type of agriculture, meaning that that further entrenches large-scale capital-intensive agriculture. Now, if that were the only option that we would have in order to uh, uh, fix nitrogen, get it to recycle within agricultural systems, that would be one thing. But as I've mentioned, we know enough about the way in which the world works that we know that by com combining different species in polycultural systems, we can substantively get exactly that same performance. We would need uh, different arch architectural setups in agricultural fields. We would need different machinery to be able to harvest polyculturals and so on. That's the direction of technology that I would much more prefer that we go. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at gotscienceucs. Now let's get back to our interview. You've definitely sketched out a much more complex food system than, than the one that I would typically think about when I'm eating or shopping for my food at the supermarket. So let's pivot here. Let's imagine that, um, I'm, I'm going to imagine that I, I can take you with me to the supermarket next time I go. Great. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night will be my uh, shopping night. So if I'm at the supermarket, uh, you know, I'm pushing the cart down the aisle, thinking about what I want to buy for dinner. And over in the fruit and vegetable section, I spot some broccoli and some corn. And I say, ah, oh, that's what I'm going to have for dinner. I see food. I see dinner. What do you see, though, when you're in the supermarket in the vegetable section? Yeah. Well, in most supermarkets, the architecture of where those sections are is very carefully planned. Um, so that fruit and vegetable section is going to be over on the side at the very edge of the supermarket to begin with. And the reason for that is that fruits and vegetables by and large are not processed. Uh, you know, they may in the most processed instances be in uh, containers, cartons, and they may be wrapped in plastic, but you'll substantively get the actual fruit and vegetable. Um, when we say that something is not processed to the industry, what that means is that there's less value add. You know, there's less that they can charge you for the packaging, the ingredients, the formulation, uh, the creation of what the industry refers to as an edible bite, uh, and what we understand is basically convenient. We go into a place like that to get the pieces that we assemble into a meal, and most of us don't want to spend more than about 10 to 15 minutes to do that. So the industry is providing value. It's making sure that we mm. get those ingredients in a convenient way or the actual edible bites. So we're uh, recording this here in October. If you are seeing sweet corn, um, at which by the way, corn would be all over that supermarket. We can get back and talk about that, but it would be a dramatically different kind of corn that you would find in the fruit and vegetables section. So there you would have sweet corn. If you in fact are seeing sweet corn there, it very likely has not been produced in this area. Mm. And so then you have to ask yourself, where is that sweet corn coming from? It's been transported. Um, so I see that there's been a lot of fossil fuel that has been invested in providing you the convenience that regardless of what season it is, whether that 
uh, product is actually native to this place or not, whether it can be produced in season here, you're going to have the ability to eat that if that's what you want to have. Uh, you know, if on a whim you want to have sweet corn. Um, with the broccoli, what I would see is that this is a very labor-intensive crop. There are many aspects of it that are highly mechanized, and as a matter of fact, by the, by the time that that broccoli leaves the field, it's already in the cartons that are going to be delivered to grocery stores. The key thing is that it's chilled someplace uh, until it actually gets loaded onto semis and then distributed throughout the country. But in order to get those cartons packed, there is intensive human labor that's involved with crews that are actually following along with the machine. They're doing the cutting with knives in the field, bundling them up, and that bundle that you buy in the grocery store is already created by that worker before they put it into the carton on these moving conveyor belts that are moving through the field. These folks are working from sunup to sundown they need to keep up with the machine. You know, there is no stopping for anything. And so you have to think of yourself as a human cog in a mechanical system subject to the needs of the machinery. And so that means that human needs, you know, all the way from your bio breaks to whether you're thirsty or not, to whether your knees are tired, to whether there's too much sun, uh, all of that are things that you are exposed to in a uh, case where you're not really going to be paid a whole lot for that. You're actually seen as a cost of the system that needs to be minimized. So I think about all of those things, what it takes. And furthermore, I think that whereas most people would look at that system and say, hey, that's a very efficient system. If I drove you up in my pickup truck and we just observed it from the side of the road, you would see all of these things humming along. It would look like a lot of progress, a well-optimized uh, system. And I see in that that if you take those human beings out of that, that system doesn't work. They are some of the most valuable parts of the whole system on the economic uh, definition that if you take them away, the whole thing doesn't work. Their value is incalculable, it's infinite, and yet we pay them the least that we can in order for that whole system to work. So I see human exploitation there. So when you go to that supermarket, supermarket section and pick out that broccoli, that's what I'm conscious of. So with this image that you've painted for us of the workers, the need to transport food over long distances, the fossil fuels burned, the um, corporate nature of farming today, what's the best approach if, if I want to try to change that? Um, let me give you some examples of things that you could do in this, this area. Um, there is a farmer's market that uh, happens in this town, and most places these days will have farmer's uh, markets. When you go to these places, um, by and large, they're trying to ensure that it is farmers who have produced themselves the fruits and vegetables, the meat, the products that are being sold there. So what that means is that your dollar for that food is going to go primarily to that farm family as opposed to what happens when you go to the grocery store. In the grocery store, you're paying for the shelf space, for the lighting, for the refrigeration, for the packaging, for the processing, to the extent that what gets to the farmer, depending on what the farmer has produced, can be as little as eight cents as if what they're producing is the cereal grains uh, that go into cereal boxes, to in the best of cases, maybe 20% of the dollar if what they're producing is milk. Whereas if you go to a farmer's market, 
then your food dollar is going to that farmer directly. So you're not paying for the intermediary. Now, um, you're driving yourself to that market. You have to walk around to different spots in the market to find all of the whole foods that then you process. So you're going to be putting more labor into processing that for yourself if, you're, if what you're buying is whole foods. And that's the trade-off. You say to yourself, these are the people that I want to support and this is where I want my money to go. Now the next step is how do they treat their workers? And there this is a more difficult thing. But again, you're in a part of the world where there's some nice examples. Those are really good tips. Thank you for that. And I have one more question for you. This is uh, sure. a little bit on, a li on the lighter side. So let's just say you were on a deserted island. What would be the food you'd want with you for the rest of your life? <laughs> <laughs> what meal are you, willing, are you willing to eat for the rest of your life? Well, it, that's a very nice question, and actually I think all of us will have a different answer depending on where we're from, because we all have diets and staple foods that we grew up from, and I'm a creature of southern Mexico. Uh, beans and tortillas are the things that to me uh, define a, a warm, uh, you know, hot piping meal that... Uh, both nourishes uh, us well and also just reminds me of my culture, my family, my upbringing. And I grew up in a place where those things grew naturally and as a matter of fact, they were domesticated there. They were the native uh, crops of the area. So it's in the culture, it's in the songs, it's in the poetry, it's in the metaphors that we use every day. Well, I think I'm going to want to be on that same deserted island as you. So. <laughs> okay, well, I'll thank need you. your help because we'll need to put a lot of labor into that system. Definitely. Well, thank you, Ricardo, very much. Back to you, Colleen. And now it's time for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This Week in Science, we're going back to November 12, 1936, when the Oakland Bay Bridge first opened for traffic. The San Francisco Chronicle called the opening a dozen old-fashioned New Year's Eves thrown into one, the biggest and most good-natured crowd of tens of thousands ever to try and walk the streets and guide their autos on them. The bridge, which links Oakland and San Francisco, was originally thought to be an impossibility due to the width and depth of the body of water between the two cities. But the problem was solved by creating a complex of connecting bridges that meet at a central island. The Bay Bridge set records when it was built. The sections connecting to San Francisco were the second and third largest suspension bridges in the world, since they were two bridges strung together. And on the Oakland side, it was the longest cantilever bridge in the world. More recently, concerns about earthquake safety warranted a rebuild of the Oakland section of the bridge, which was completed in 2013 after six years and $6.4 billion. Yet less than two years after the completion of this massive public works project, a report by the Metropolitan Transportation Commission found that sea level rise is expected to permanently inundate several areas of the new span of the Bay Bridge. The commission recommended a series of construction projects to protect the bridge. Despite climate science telling us to expect rising sea levels in and around the San Francisco Bay, the new span of the Bay Bridge was built without consideration for this reality of climate change. Had the planning process taken climate science into account, it's possible that additional construction to protect the ramp to the new span would not be needed. The Bay Bridge is not the only infrastructure at risk, and sea level rise is not the only threat. 
Whether it's extreme precipitation events that put stress on our dams, or more frequent and intense heat waves that decrease the efficiency of power plants during periods when electricity demand is highest, climate change is going to have a growing impact on our infrastructure. That's why when we build in the future, we must build for the future, which means taking the effects of climate change into account. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Special thanks to Dr. Ricardo Salvador. Our correspondent is Abby Figueroa. This Week in Science History by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and don't forget to hop on over to Twitter and connect with us at GotScienceUCS. See you next time.